Hi, folks, and welcome to the Man Overseas podcast. We talk about financial independence and self-development, and we also get into investing, especially in yourself. I'm coming to you from San Miguel de Allende this week. That's in Mexico. It's about a four-hour drive north of Mexico City. So I'm at about 6,200 feet. So uh, if I start talking gibberish, you'll know why. Um, But this is a beautiful part of Mexico. The town is about around 16th century, and you can feel it just walking around the cobblestone streets, and there are cathedrals everywhere, and old squares, and colorful architecture, lots of festivities. Um, if you if you follow me on Instagram, you may have noticed I posted a story of a parade that was passing right by our Airbnb, so that was really cool. Everybody was in costumes. Um, so, I have a guest for the podcast today that I'm excited to introduce to you. He's a really sharp guy. He's a writer from New York. He's also a real estate investor and describes himself as a self-improvement junkie. And I love that. Um, His name is Joseph C. Wells. Joe, welcome to the Man Overseas Podcast, buddy. How are you? Hey, Brad. Thanks for having me. I'm doing well. How are you? Doing good, man. Thanks for being here. Um, This isn't a news podcast, obviously, but there is a lot of big news this week. I don't know. Are you one of those guys that pays attention to what goes on like on CNN and Fox News and all that? I try to avoid as much as possible. (laughs) I figured that. Um, You know why I figured that is because I know that you are a Tim Ferriss fan. And in the four hour work week, he writes about how unnecessary it is to watch the news. (laughs) Absolutely. Got to tune out the noise. Yeah. And, and if it's something really important, you it'll find you. I mean, I didn't have to go far to find out what was going on on Monday and Tuesday in the States. And I am a long way from home. So, yeah. That's, uh, that's, that's for sure. A lot of crazy stuff going on. Oh, man. I can't believe it. I mean, Tuesday's news was like as big as Monday's news, at least according to my Twitter. I mean, it was blowing up. Yeah, I try to uh, just keep it in the background, you know, focus on the important stuff. <laughs> good for you. You're good about it. Um, you're, are you from upstate New York? I am, yeah. I'm from a little, little town called Moravia, kind of between Syracuse and Ithaca. Okay, yeah. So that's why you're a big Orangeman fan, right? Don't you root for Syracuse Athletics? I do, yeah. That's, uh, that was my team growing up. Oh, nice. Do you remember when they won the national championship in 2003 with Carmelo? Oh, of course. That was a, that was a big deal for us. I remember distinctly going into the local grocery store after they won and buying the Sports Illustrated commemorative edition. And it's, it's probably still sitting in my parents' house somewhere. <laughs> That's cool. And so now you work in New York City. Is that right? How'd you end up in New York? New York City. Yeah, so I, I ended up there after taking a, uh, an internship my last semester in college, and it was a three-month internship, and afterwards I got a job offer, and I really never expected to be in New York almost six years after I graduated college, but I took the job offer, and, and here I am. There you are. Oh, cool. So what kind of work do you do? You said it was a consulting company? Yeah, I do consulting. So the company does a lot of things, but mainly what I specialize in is anti-money laundering investigations. Um, It's regulatory compliance, and most of our clients are banks. Mm -hmm. 
That's cool. Um, I'm a big fan of your blog too, and that's sort of how I how we found each other. Um, is that your side hustle blogging? It is, yeah. So it's my side interest. Um, not currently making any money off it, but last year I started uh, kind of banking some posts because I really enjoy writing. And I said, well, let me put this out here and, and see what happens. So it's kind of just an experiment that I'm spending my you know, weekends working on. Maybe at some point I'll monetize it, but yeah, right now it's just something I enjoy doing. Your writing is excellent. What made you want to be a writer? Oh, thank you, Brad. Um, I really enjoy reading and I, I find that when I write, it helps me to formulate thoughts better. So my writing process is pretty sloppy, I guess. I'll, I'll write something and then I'll go back and revise it three or four times. And in that process, it helps me understand what I want to say and better formulate my own opinions. <laughs> I really agree with that. I love writing too. And it so much helps with organizing your thoughts. You're right. Um, so you write mo a lot about financial independence and self-improvement. And I too am fanatical about self-development. I'm curious, when did the self-development quest start for you? So it probably really started two years after college. Um, my best friend and roommate at the time, his name's Pat Dundon. We were always kicking around different podcasts and different business ideas and different workouts and really were just kind of interested in getting better. And we lived together for about five years and really just fed off of each other until uh, one day we came up with this idea that we wanted to write a book for high school seniors. And the purpose of the book was to teach them the things that we had learned since graduating high school that would have been really helpful to know in college and then immediately after college in your first job. So that's when we really dug into the self-improvement stuff and listened to hundreds of podcasts and read a lot of books and articles and then really everything we could get our hands on. We kind of put it together in a, in a small package. It was like a 50-page book. And that's that's what we were shooting for. We wanted something that was easily digestible. It was conversational and could be um, understood by a high school senior. And it felt more like your big brother giving you advice rather than your parents telling you, this is what you need to do because what high school senior is going to listen to what their parents tell them. <laughs> right. So that's really where the journey um, took off. And we spent about a year putting that together and, um, our, our idea behind it was that we were going to sell it to high schools to give to every senior at graduation. Um, so it, it was a pretty short book, pretty low cost. And the only way to make any money off of it was to sell it in bulk. So um, we got, I don't know, five or six high schools on board and some organizations that did youth development in, in the communities. And we sold about 800 books the first year. Um, but then after that, we just decided that we were really putting too much time and effort into it for what we were getting out of it. Like we love helping people. We love giving advice and, and teaching, but we were not great on the marketing side and we weren't able to execute there. Um, but, but that's really where the, the self-improvement, self-development journey started. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love what you said there. The importance of good roommates, I think is 
it's underestimated. It's uh, it's underestimated how susceptible people are to the influence of those that they spend the most time with. And I have always sought good when I was younger, sought good roommates too, uh, because you can't help but feed off each other. Uh, so I, I like that. And you guys went into business together. Do you also now invest in real estate together? We do. Yeah. Pat's my partner in our, our real estate business as well. Oh, good. Okay. So I'm going to ask about that. But first I want to know, so re- with regard to the self-development quest, you have developed a unique system for tracking your progress. And it's I, I, I've read a little bit about it. It's called One Click. Is that sort of a self-assessment? Can you talk about One Click, the, the system you developed and where the idea for it came from? Yeah. So one click is basically a framework for self-improvement, both measurement of and motivation to improve yourself. So I have this idea that if you look at a continuum from one to 10, broken into what I call 100 clicks, you can plot everybody in the world on that continuum. And I call it the engagement continuum. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my theory is that most people in the world kind of fall between a four and a five. And these people either graduated high school, went out and get a job or went to trade school and got a job or, you know, maybe even got a four-year degree and got a job. But then once they got that job, they got pretty comfortable and they go to work, they do a fine job. They come home and they plop down on the couch and watch Netflix or go hang out at the bar or whatever. They're not doing a lot to improve. Um, And then right below that area is what I call the complacency vortex. And this is important because if you're in that four to five area, if you're not doing anything to improve, you're sliding backwards. And if you slide far enough, you slide into this complacency vortex, which is really a downward spiral of negative habits. Um, I firmly believe that your habits compound. So if you have positive habits, They build slowly on each other until you reach a point where you have exponential growth. Now, the same is true in the opposite direction. If you build up a lot of bad habits, at some point, you're going to hit a cliff and you're going to fall off of it. And that's the complacency vortex. Mm -hmm. Um, So very briefly, on the other side of the, the four and fives is the five to seven range. This is where I would imagine most of the listeners of this podcast are going to be. These are people who really are working actively to improve across a number of dimensions. I have six pillars that I, I kind of have built into this and we can go into them in more detail if you want to. But uh, these people are exercising, they're reading books, uh, they're trying to learn about new things and, and form opinions uh, from a, a broad array of experiences, right? Rather than just where they came from. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then when you get above that, the, the the seven to ten range, these really high performers, your people like um, Tim Ferriss, Ryan Holiday, um, I put Atul Gawande on there. I have some professional athletes in there. These people have really nailed one or two or three of those six pillars, and they're doing pretty good in the other ones as well. Mm-hmm. So the way I use this um, to motivate myself and 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 to hopefully motivate others is that. The idea is you always want to get to the next click. Maybe you decide you want to be a seven uh, and you're a five and a half right now. So you you lay out a plan to go one click at a time to a seven. But then once you get to a seven, this this is an important part. You can't just stop doing what you're doing. Even if you only want to be a seven and that's where you want to stay, you have to continue to have these good habits. Otherwise, you slide backwards like like I spoke about earlier. So that's kind of the idea of one click in a nutshell. 
Mm-hmm. I love that, man. I, I believe everybody should have a way to assess themselves. I wrote a blog article called From Survival to Success. The idea was to go from survival to stability to success to significance. And I call it the four S's and I stole it from somebody else. Um, But it was something that I tracked on December 31st of every year because I needed to know how I was doing and how I could harness the previous year to get better for the next year. Um, But once I took a look at your one click, yours is better than mine. And it's very detailed. And I love how you laid it out. I believe you assess yourself at about a 5.5. Is that right? I do. Yes. Yes. And and thank you for that compliment. Uh, it, it, It was a problem. It was just plaguing me. I couldn't get it out of my head. I saw all all these people just being so complacent and not making any positive movement that I, I had to put this down on paper and, and get my thoughts out there. Cool. Yeah, it's excellent. And I know that you said uh, there's nothing wrong with being at the bar, but a large segment of the population is in a perpetual state of being at the bar. What do you mean by that? So the the area that I I talked about from four to five, that's what I call the bar. And I I call it that because there's nothing wrong with being at the bar. I like to go to the bar from time to time to watch a game or have a beer or meet with a friend. But when you're at the bar, you're probably not doing anything really productive. Uh, There's a good chance you're not surrounded by people who uh, are pushing you to be better. And it's pretty likely that you're kind of just killing time until your next activity. So while it's okay to be there now, certainly not where you want to spend most of your time. Yeah. And do you think that people should compare themselves to other people? That's a good question. I I have other people ranked on this continuum, mostly for reference. So if you want to compare yourself, say, Brad, that you put yourself at a seven and I'm at a 5.5. I might want to compare myself to you in the sense that I say, I really like where Brad's at. I think he has developed himself over these six pillars in a way that I admire and I would like my life to be like that. So I'm going to work towards where Brad is and this is how I'm going to do it. Um, but in the sense that you compare yourself to people um, in, a, in a competitive way, no, I, I, I don't think you should do that. I think uh, the purpose of plotting people on this continuum is, is for reference and for examples and ideas of how you can improve. But look, if you want to be a six, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, part, one of my pillars is conscious lifestyle design. That's kind of really understanding what you want out of life and then working to get there. If a six is where you want to be, totally fine. You're not any worse than an eight. You're just different. So it's it's not a competitive sense. It's just a, a frame of reference for uh, where you might want to be. I like that. Yeah, it's, it's a balance, right? I tell this story when I give a talk about playing college baseball, which is pretty competitive, and you have to compete with others, of course. Um, but playing any NCAA sport is like having a full-time job in addition to classes. So you're competing in the classroom, you're competing on the field. And I had this goal of wanting to be a first team all-conference player. And it was a goal that I had written down. And I had I had a decent year as a sophomore, didn't get any recognition, and then had a much better junior year and didn't even get like an honorable mention. <laughs> so uh, my senior year, I thought I would get on this all-conference team and I knew I had a shot because I knew who in the conference were going to be seniors. Well, there was this skinny sophomore kid from the University of Texas Arlington, which is in our conference. Um, his name was on the first team. And when I saw his name on the list, I knew that my name wouldn't be there. He had taken that spot, basically. 
But what I learned from that is that there'll always be somebody faster and stronger and better looking and, and smarter. Uh, it doesn't matter what category it is. But if you compare yourself to yourself and you get better every year, you will accomplish some great things. So I ended up being second team all conference in a conference that was pretty stacked with stud hitters. Anyway, that kid's name was Hunter Pence. So that's what I took from that exam that that experience was that, you know, it's, it's sort of like shoot for the stars and you might end up at the moon. But I mean, I learned so many things from just having those goals of discipline and um, work habits and, and work ethic and being able to balance school and and baseball and all of that. So anyway, I, I, I couldn't agree more with with comparing yourself to yourself. But of course, there's there are some competitive aspects to life that you're not going to be able to avoid. I mean, life is competition. It's part of living. Absolutely. And that that's a great example. And kind of as as you illustrated, it's not so much about the outcome, but it's the steps you're taking towards that outcome and, and the benefits that you receive from those steps in the process. Absolutely. Underneath your real life examples for your one click system, you have bullet points describing different aspects of one's character that you deem important. And one of those is intellectual humility. Why is intellectual humility so integral to one's character development? It's really important to me because if you don't have the ability to change your mind, you're going to be a very difficult individual to work with. And much of the work that anyone does is is a team-based thing. So you, you have to be able to not only hear the ideas of others, but listen to those ideas, consider those ideas, um, think about things from a different perspective other than what you're used to. And, and be able to formulate your opinions based on not only your experiences. Now, I believe that humility by itself is a very important quality, but if you have intellectual humility, you, you certainly have humility across the board. Um, so that's why that specific pillar is, is very important to me. I couldn't agree more. Have strong opinions loosely held, right? That might be yes. a stoic tenet. I don't know where I got it, but it might be intellectual humility might be most important. That beginner's mindset, which my best friend talked about on episode one of my podcast, that beginner's mindset should always stay with you because you should always be learning. You're never too old to learn. Um, so many people today think that they know it all. <laughs> and uh, um, yeah, I just... Yeah, they, they, yeah, that's that's a good point. And really, the only way to get better is to approach every situation as if you don't really know anything about it. Um, you, you can learn something from every single person you meet, even if it's how not to act. So I think if you approach your interactions in that way, you always stand to gain. God, is that true? Yes, I call them anti-role models, even people <laughs> that you disagree with, man, and you you learn to not despise them because you learn so much from them. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's such an important way to go through life. Um, so you are, uh, are you on the financial independence journey, would you say? Yeah, I would say I am. That's, that's my ultimate goal. Um, it's probably a little bit different from... Uh, how the community typically executes. Um, but yeah, I am. Why do you say that? Why do you think it's different from the way that the community normally executes? So a lot of what I've read and, and what I see on Twitter and, and all that is 
people aggressively saving and then living off the money that they have saved in the form of like the 4% rule or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to get there before that. So my approach has been a little bit different in that I am purchasing real estate properties, uh, investment properties. And my, my plan is at some point, hopefully in seven years or less to be living off the income from those properties. That's cool. Yeah. I think people don't understand, at least the people that I talk to, I I coach several people on how to become financially independent. It's, it's, it requires a much lower net worth if you get there through real estate investing, right? Because you can have, let's say, a half million dollar net worth, which would be $500,000 of equity in real estate that provides anywhere from five to $8,000 in income. And if that income exceeds your expenses, then you are effectively financially free. Whereas if you are investing in something like, I know a lot of people in the financial independence community invest in Vanguard funds. If you have your money in an index fund like VTSAX, which is a total stock market index, it requires a a $1.5 million net worth to shoot off $60,000 for you to live, which is the same $5,000 a month that you get from your $500,000 in real estate equity. But it's a lot more work <laughs> to, to maintain tenants and be a landlord and find new tenants when they vacate. If you have some expertise in real estate and you understand the market, that a lot of times is a better way to go. Is that, is that what you're thinking? Yeah, I think you totally hit the nail on the head there. Um, I, I kind of looked at the numbers that I would need to uh, retire just just with a, a portfolio in VTSAX or something like that. And like you said, it's $1.5 million. And I looked at that and said, well, looks like I'm not going that route because I don't have that much time. I, 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 uh, I know you talk about the concept of time, time freedom, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I need to have the time freedom before I can have $1.5 million to throw off the, the income that I need. So yeah, like you said, it's a little bit more work, but if you have systems and you've got a good team, it's really not that bad. So true. How did you get started in real estate investing and what was the impetus for you doing that? So it, it kind of goes back to what I was saying before about my friend and my roommate, Pat. We were interested in how can we make more money? What's what's a good side hustle here? And we landed on real estate. So we picked up the Bigger Pockets podcast and listened to pretty much all of their episodes and we read some books and we read some articles and we said, Hey, I I think we can do this. And after about a year and a half of research and learning, we said, all right, we're going to go make a weekend. We're going to go look at eight or 10 places. And by the weekend have offers in and we're going to be owners of a rental property. So we had an area picked out where uh, we both had pretty good connections. We knew the area well and we had at least a basic infrastructure that could support us. So we took that weekend trip and by Sunday night, we had an accepted offer and our first property. Sweet. That's great, man. And so do you also invest in the stock market? I do. Not, not as much as real estate, but certainly do invest in the stock market. Mm-hmm. And how do you do that? I, I go through my traditional 401k, which is where 
probably most of my net worth is, um, but also I have a brokerage account, Vanguard, where I primarily invest in VTI, which is an ETF. Yeah, we mentioned VTSAX earlier, and I've mentioned it on several podcasts. And it is VTSAX is a total stock market index fund that you can auto dollar cost average into every month or every paycheck, however you choose to do it. And I know that VTI is similar. Have you compared the two funds? I did a comparison a year or two ago when I decided to start investing in in one of the two. And they're basically identical. The only difference I remember is that VTSAX is a fund and VTI is an ETF. So the the major difference there is that uh, VTSAX requires a minimum $10,000 investment. So I decided that being that I, I want to continue expanding my real estate holdings, mm-hmm. I don't want to be tied into having a, a minimum of $10,000 into this. If I need to liquidate money to go buy another property, um, I want to have that freedom to do that. So I went with the, the ETF, VTI. Okay. And you mentioned your 401k. Do you try to max out your 401k? Do you think that's important? I think it's important early on in your career. Um so I wrote an article about leveraging your 401k um, into real estate. So for that purpose, yes, I think it's very important. For the purpose of early retirement, uh, it has limited value, right? Because we can't touch it until we're 59 and a half unless you're using a loan. So I, I've I've never maxed my 401k. One year I came very close and the rest of the years I've, I've put in certainly over 10%. Um, so I think it's important to build that up early. but it's really only one tool in your belt if you're working towards financial independence. Okay. I read the article that you had published on thinksaveretire.com. Is that the article that you're referring to? Yes. Or K investing? Okay. And what was the article about? So the article was about um, the strategy that one would use to invest their uh, 401k into real estate and then kind of side by side my journey on how I did that. Mm. Can you talk about how you would go about borrowing money from your 401k to invest in real estate? Yeah, absolutely. Um, The restrictions are typically that you can borrow up to $50,000 or 50% of your total holdings whichever is lower. So if you have $100,000, you can borrow 50,000. If you have $60,000, you can borrow 30,000. And then typically you can repay that over up to five years and you pay interest on it, but the interest is paid to yourself. So it's paid back into your account. Um, it's also repaid with after-tax money. So that's a bit of a downside, but it's not, it's not too bad. So what I did was I took a loan for somewhere in the neighborhood of $30,000 and then put that into real estate. Now over five years, I will repay that loan out of my paycheck, possibly before if I decide to do that. Um, But it effectively allowed me to use pre-tax money to invest in real estate. And that, that allowed me to buy more properties than I would have been able to at a younger age, because if I was saving that money outside of my 401k, it would have been maybe 70%, right? Because it's after tax. Mm -hmm. Do you know if you can do the same thing with your IRA? That's a good question. I actually don't know the answer to that um, because I don't have an IRA. Okay. I, I don't think you can, but I'm not positive. 
All right. I was just curious. Do you know what the maximum amount that you can contribute to your 401k in 2019 is? I believe it's 19,000. Okay. Yeah, I was just curious. Um, so you see this 401k investing in real estate idea as a, as a big opportunity, right? I mean, how do you think about risk? Because I'm sure that's what listeners are concerned about. We're always told, don't touch your 401k. But in terms of the strategy, how do you think about risk? What are the downsides? Sure. So there, there are a couple downsides. Number one, if you lose your job, you have to repay that loan within three months or you pay the 10% penalty and all the tax on it. So if you have a $50,000 loan now and you lose your job, you could uh, be in a little bit of trouble there. Um, the other potential downside is that you take the money out um, in a low market and the market goes up and it outpaces your real estate returns. I think that's uh, a bit more unlikely because if you're doing real estate correctly, I, I think you can easily get 20% and it's going to be pretty hard to get 20% in the market most years. Um, so I, I see that as a smaller risk, but generally how I view risk is that when, when we think of a, a decision that is traditionally risky, it's actually not that risky. So something like taking the money out of your 401k, what is the absolute worst case scenario here? I take out $50,000, I lose my job, I'm not able to repay it. So I'm out 10%, which is $5,000 plus the taxes on that, which is, I don't know, maybe another 10 or 15. So you've lost $20,000, right? That's a lot of money, but it's not like you can't recover from that. And the potential upside is um, maybe more than a 20% return on investment in real estate, plus you're using pre-tax money to invest in real estate. So you're kind of getting to your end game a little bit faster than you would be able to otherwise. Um, so I, I think when I look at decisions that I'm going to make, I look at what is the absolute worst outcome. And if that happened, how, how bad of a situation would I be in? Most of the time when I think about that, it's really not that bad of a situation. I could easily recover from it. It might set me back from where I, I wanted to be. And of course it will, but it's not something that you can't recover from. Um, this idea, I think Tim Ferriss calls it fear setting, mm -hmm. and he talks about practicing it all the time, but it's been instrumental for me, um, I think, on this financial independence route to be able to, to, be able to reconcile uh, taking risks um, to reach my ultimate goals. Mm -hmm. Okay, interesting. Um, I have not touched my 401k, but the way that you explain it on thinksaveretire.com, the article that you published there, it's, it's very well articulated. So if anyone is interested in doing that, I recommend reading his article. Um, one question that I have, you live in New York City, which is one of the most expensive cities in the world. Um, how, how does frugality play a part in your financial strategy? It's certainly a bit harder. I actually live in White Plains, which is about 20 miles north of New York City. Okay. Um, when I initially moved to New York, I lived in the city. I lived with roommates, though. So when I was an intern, we had four guys living in a two-bedroom apartment, and I was sleeping on a bunk bed with one of my friends. So we, <laughs> it wasn't an ideal situation, but it allowed us to save some money. So all the time I spent in New York, which was about a year and a half to two years, I had roommates and I lived in places that were certainly not glamorous. They weren't dumps by any means, but they're not the type of places that 
most of my coworkers in consulting or banking are going to live in. They don't have a doorman. They don't have an elevator. They don't have a gym. They don't have any of the amenities. So I've found that if you look around a little bit and you're willing to compromise some things, you can still live in these areas at a little bit better price, especially if you have a roommate. So then after about two years, I moved to White Plains, which allowed me to have a place that was nearly twice as big for actually less money. Mm-hmm. The, the flip side of that is now I have an hour commute to the city, but I can use that time to read a book or take a nap or listen to a podcast. And also when I moved to White Plains, I had a roommate. So that cut my uh, rental costs big time. I think when we moved in, our rent was $1,800 for a two bedroom apartment. So we're each paying 900 bucks plus parking. There aren't very many cities in the country where you're going to spend a lot less than $1,000. And also, so the other side is you're making a New York City salary. So if you approach it uh, in a way that's thought out and deliberate, it's mm-hmm. actually a, a very favorable situation to live in, in a high cost market like New York or maybe even San Francisco. But if you're not being deliberate, you can certainly spend your whole paycheck on rent. Yeah, I would imagine. I have a buddy in New York City who pays 4500 for a small one-bedroom and $500 for his parking space per month, which is a few blocks from the apartment. So <laughs> it's just nuts to somebody who lives in Houston. I think Houston is probably one of the more low-cost cities um, with a lot of job opportunity. And I, like you, live with roommates in my 20s and tried to live in the suburbs. And um, yeah, it's a great way to play defense and keep your costs down. Probably my favorite article of yours is the one you, where you talk about not caring what other people think. <laughs> and it's so true. What people think about you and how you live, it, it just doesn't matter. And I think for most people, it takes a while to gain this wisdom I think the best example of that is, I mean, who gives less fucks than a woman in her 70s, right? <laughs> what, advice, <laughs> what advice do you have for people who maybe allow others to get inside their dome and affect how they go about their daily living? I don't think there's really an easy way to make this. I just said, why would I do anything to please other people if it doesn't benefit me? Now, of course, if you're talking about your wife or your girlfriend or your family or, or decisions that really affect other people, you can't apply this mindset. You'd be a sociopath, right? But for stupid little things like I talk about in the article, like you know, eating the same lunch every day or uh, I ran on the treadmill in my bathing suit because I forgot my gym shorts, who cares? You know, I'm not friends with any of the people at the gym, really. And I am, they're probably just going to pick on me for two seconds and it's over, but I got my workout in. So it didn't, it didn't adversely affect me. And another benefit to not caring what people think is you're probably going to get picked on a little bit. And if you can deal with being picked on and kind of give it, give it back, I think that builds your character. Um, So it's kind of like a, a two for one thing there. Oh, that is so true. And this goes back a long time. So I like to read books from 19th century. And one of the things that author Schopenhauer writes is that what goes on in other people's consciousness is a matter of indifference to us. And in time, we get really indifferent to it when we come to see how superficial and futile are most people's thoughts, you know, how narrow their ideas. And so when you read that people as far back as 
Schopenhauer back in the 19th century was was dealing with this. And then you go back 2000 years and read about what the Stoics said about caring what other people think. If you can gain that wisdom it's at a young age, it's so crucial to the good life, I think. Um, do you have a, an example of something that you do that maybe people make fun of, <laughs> make fun of you for? I know you, you brought up the um, the gym example where you had to wear your bathing suit. Um, but do you have any other examples of something you do that maybe people might pick on you for, but it just doesn't matter because you're so focused on your goals? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, like I briefly mentioned, um, I bring my lunch pretty much every day and I cook it on Sunday and bring the same thing all week. And one of my go-tos is chili because it's really healthy, at least the way I make it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's easy. It takes me 30 to 45 minutes to make my chili for the whole week. Um, and I think it tastes pretty good. So I, <laughs> I like it all around, but you know, by Thursday and Friday, when you're bringing in a bowl of chili and you're sitting next to your coworkers who have seen you eat chili for four days in a row, you certainly get some, some looks and some comments. Some of them say, Hey, that, that smells really good. Did you make that? And then it, you know, kind of goes into that kind of conversation. Some of them say, really chili again, how are you doing that? <laughs> but it it doesn't affect me like like you mentioned about stoicism i think kind of a, a stoic tenet that the opinions of others have no impact on you unless you let them so that's kind of how i approach just about everything that i do and and especially bringing my lunch because it saves me a lot of money i certainly eat healthier and i have to make fewer decisions both in what I'm going to eat every day and if I'm going to eat healthy or not. Because if I've brought the lunch, I know what I'm eating and I know that it's going to be healthy. If I don't bring lunch, I have to decide, number one, where I'm going to eat. And I know myself well enough to know that I'm probably going to make a bad choice. So I'm going to eat pizza or I'm going to eat way too much or I'm going to eat fried food. If that decision has been made for me on Sunday, I don't have to make it five times throughout the week, which saves me money and keeps me a lot healthier. So true, man. Do you make it with turkey? I do. Yeah. Cool. It's like a little microcosm of life too, where you make a little investment of time at the beginning of the week, and then you get all of the benefits later in the week, right? Real estate investing is like that. I always get asked, what's the biggest headache of being a landlord? Or why would you want to be a slumlord when you have to deal with all these tenants? And I'm like, all you have to do is screen, do the grunt work up front. You screen them, you interview them as if you're interviewing them for a job, and then you prevent all of your headaches down the road. <laughs> so that's kind of, that's how I view life, man. If you just make the investment of time and invest in yourself, then you get all of the benefits later. Exactly. Do the heavy lifting up front and then you can kind of coast a little bit. So true. I just wrote an article that I published yesterday about um, getting busy with $100,000. And it's about the, d- the discipline and delayed gratification that is required to achieve financial independence. So the, the biggest pain of financial independence is getting to $100,000. $100, but once you get there, then you start to get more of the benefits of compounding returns as opposed to when you're getting to $100,000, most of it is saving rather than investing. But do what you got to do. If you have to get a roommate, if you have to drive a piece of shit car, if you, you know, eat hamburger helper every day or turkey chili every day, those are the things that you have to do to get to 100000 and then the, some of the magic starts to happen. I'm curious about your typical day. Like what time do you wake up? Do you try to get a certain amount of sleep every night? Do you eat breakfast? Kind of walk me through your day. How, how, does, how do you see your day? How do you plan for your day? 
So I always try to get at least eight hours. Um, that doesn't always work out, but I almost always get at least seven. And, and when my girlfriend's staying here, I always get eight. She's a really good influence and uh, makes me go to bed when I should. <laughs> but I, I typically wake up at 5.30 and go to the gym because I'm training for a half Ironman right now. Mm -hmm. So I really have to maximize my time in the gym. So I'll get up at 5.30, go to the gym for about an hour. Then I'll come back, um, get ready for work throw my lunch together really quick. It's usually already packaged. I'm just kind of putting it in a bag. Um, I'll make a protein shake that I'll take with me and then I'll drink that when I get to work. And that's usually my breakfast and I might have another snack in the morning. And then I'm at work from usually eight 30 or nine till six or seven or eight at night. Um, a couple days a week, I'll go to gym, go to the gym after work as well. Um, and then I'll hop on the train, come home. So I have about an hour commute on each side. Uh, when I get home, usually cook something quick for dinner. Uh, I've been eating a lot of cheeseburgers lately, probably not the healthiest thing, but man, they're, uh, they're quick and delicious. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I'll try to stretch for a little while or read a book or work on my blog, respond to emails, uh, maybe related to real estate, just kind of knock out the little tasks that I have. And if I have any free time, I try to enjoy it. Um, reading a book, talking with my girlfriend, um, doing things to help me unwind a little bit. And then uh, many nights I will meditate for 10 minutes before I go to bed. Um, recently I haven't been doing that as much, um, because I'm exercising so hard and I haven't felt the need to do it as much. Um, mm -hmm. but, uh, certainly I will do that frequently. And then I'm in bed usually by nine 30 or 10. Cool. I, um, I've heard, Arnold Schwarzenegger talk about how exercising can be meditative because he puts himself inside the muscle. And I found that too, like when you're in the zone, when you're working out, a lot of times it can substitute for sitting and doing your meditation practice. I'm curious, do you, go ahead. I, so I agree with you. I don't think it can entirely replace it. But if you're running short on time and you're exercising hard enough, I think you can, uh, go for a while without meditating. What is the biggest benefit that you've gotten from meditating? So I've seen two major benefits. Um, number one is a decrease in what I call the racing mind. So I'm the type of person who is always thinking about something and usually two or three or four things. Mm -hmm. um, and when, when you're trying to focus on a task, that's uh, it's challenging to focus if you got two or three or four other things going on up there. So I found through meditating, even just 10 minutes a day, it clears my head a little bit. It slows down my thoughts. It allows me to understand how better to focus and kind of segment things into, okay, I'm going to do this now. And then I'm going to focus on the next thing. And if I don't get to the third thing, that's okay. Like we'll, we'll get to it later. Um, number two and, and this is probably even more important than the first benefit. I've, I've found it easier to fall asleep when I'm meditating regularly. That might be a result of not having as many things bouncing around in my head, but it, it certainly makes a difference. And I'll, I'll sometimes get in bed and it'll be 10 o'clock and I'll think, oh man, it's late. I'm not going to meditate. I'm just going to go to sleep. And then I spend a half hour laying there because my mind's racing, where if I had spent 10 minutes meditating, I'd probably be asleep already. So those are the two big benefits that I've seen. I, I'm curious, what what benefits have you seen from meditation? Well, a combination of writing and meditating really helps me to observe what's going on in my mind 
and I talk somewhat, I've talked a little bit about metacognition and how it's really thinking about your, your own thinking and having mental models and heuristics for optimizing your life. And so mm-hmm. before I meditated, I was prayerful and I found that meditation was very similar to prayer in that you are almost without, it's almost like a byproduct of doing the practice consistently, you start to cultivate an inner life. And one of the downsides of doing that, I should say, is like you start to notice people who have never had that experience and you wish that they wish that they had like I really enjoy talking to you as a, a writer and meditator because your thoughts are so organized and you're poised and you're you know confident so I would say the biggest benefit is just being able to think about my own thinking and and observing my thoughts and being able to direct them better I was always sort of a calm person to begin with um, but I do notice that if I get out of practice it takes me a while to get back into it, much like writing. But once I get back into it, I'm like, oh, man, why why did I stop? Because, it, I, yeah, it, it's so centering. I, I totally agree. And I, 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 I just agree with everything that you just said. It's, it's uh, <laughs> kind of just hits the nail on the head. And it reminds me of, com- of a conversation I had with my cousin about a week ago. Uh, we were talking about when you have conversations with other people and you'll go into a two or three minute explanation of why you have an opinion on a certain topic and and how you've thought that through. And when you finish your explanation, the other person just says, Oh yeah, that's cool. And they don't, (laughs) they don't offer anything to reciprocate. And it's, it's usually, at least I think it's usually because they haven't taken any time to thought to think about it. So I, I always wonder like, what are, what's going on in somebody's head that they're not always thinking about something and, and trying to understand why they think that way. Yeah. It can be frustrating. Yeah. I think that people's emotions too, too often overwhelm their intellect and they're not willing to put forth the effort to recognize that and overcome it. Uh, That's been my experience anyway. Yeah. Um, That, that sounds pretty accurate. Yeah. Cool. So I'll ask you some fast questions that you don't have to come up with quick answers, but um, just some things I'm curious about because you're a writer and you read a lot. Do you have a target number of books that you're trying to read every year? So that was part of my goals for 2017 and 2018. In 2017, I wanted to read 12 books, which sounds super low, but I just hadn't been reading that much. So that was my goal. And I read 17 that year. And then Last year in 2018, my goal was 24 books. And I only got to 20, but I didn't think it was a big deal at all because when I set that goal, I decided I wasn't going to compromise on the type of books I would read just to hit the goal. So last year I read Titan and I read a couple other books that were just pretty massive. Titan took me more than a month to get through. And that's um, the biography of John D. Rockefeller, which was fantastic and I would recommend to everyone. Uh, but it's, uh, it's, it's long. <laughs> it takes yeah. some time. Um, so this year I didn't set a goal for the reading because it's 
an ingrained habit at this point. So it doesn't really matter to me how many books I read. I know I'm going to read a, a pretty decent amount and it's just something I do every day. So I didn't feel the need to make it a goal anymore. That's cool. I also love Titan. It's the best biography that I've ever read. And I'm real big on reading books by and about successful people. So I've read quite a few and it's long, but it's worth it. So yeah, I recommend people listening to, if they're looking for a good biography to read, Titan about John D. Rockefeller is excellent. I'm curious, is it, go ahead. Have you read Open, Andre Agassi's biography? I have not. That's a really good one. I I would recommend that because he, so I, I found that tennis professionals have an interesting mental dynamic because so much of their practice is solitary so they kind of have to cultivate this it's a unique personality and and the stories of their lives i I find to be more unique and stoic and personally for me motivating so I, i think you might like that one okay yeah i'll check it out i just wrote it down um is it important to you that you finish books yeah you know it is and and sometimes that's to my detriment um you know, if I get halfway through a book and I'm just really not enjoying it, I think, well, it's kind of the sunk cost fallacy, right? I've, I've spent so much time uh, reading this already. I, I might as well finish it. And one good example of that was uh, Mornings on Horseback. So I read that last year and it's a biography of Theodore Roosevelt, mm-hmm. but it really more talks about his family and his younger years. And I just didn't find it very interesting, but I pushed my way through it and probably spent more time reading it than I should have. Um, Why do you ask that question? Do you have the same issue? I do. I think that nonfiction books weren't always meant to be finished, but I felt an obligation to finish books for some reason that I'm slowly moving away from because a lot of nonfiction books could have been blog posts, (laughs) but they had to justify the printing of, you know, the paper and the cost of manufacturing and marketing a book that they had to make a blog post into a book. So a lot of times you can get the meat of a book without reading the entire 250 pages or 300 pages. And I like to highlight books. So a lot of times if I'm rereading, sometimes I will just I would just go through the highlights of what I liked and the Kindle and the nooks make that easy to do. Um, but yeah, it's, it's still a struggle. I still feel a, a, a tinge of ob, a, a little bit of obligation to try to finish it. I don't know why I wish I didn't have that about myself, but um, yeah, fiction that's, books I will finish. Go ahead. That's, that's a good point about the nonfiction books. Um, not, needing to be read in their entirety that I I hadn't really thought of it in that way before, but that's a really good point. So if you're going to read just certain sections of a nonfiction book, how do you decide which ones are are important or good without reading the whole book? Well, I usually don't read a book unless it's recommended to me. And I really have to trust that person because I so value my time that I don't want to spend it on something that I'm not going to get anything from. So I will ask the person who recommends it, or maybe they've written a blog post about the book, uh, just to get an, get an indication of where the meat is. <laughs> so I don't waste time. Uh, but you know, you can, you can peruse chapters and try to figure out which parts you want. And, and I don't, I don't any longer feel an obligation to even start at the front. I've always read magazines from back to front 
why not do, I mean, you can do that with books too. So sometimes I'll start on chapter eight and then I'll read chapter four and chapter 11. You know, one of the books that I wrote a, um, a review of was the 48 laws of power. And mm-hmm. there would be no reason in the world to start with um, the law number one and then finish at law 48. I mean, you can skip around. And I think a lot of books are that way, especially nonfiction. Of course, nonfiction. You couldn't do it with fiction and get away with it. <laughs> um, yeah, just, you know, peruse the table of contents and see what it is that you want to read or just ask the person who recommended this nonfiction book, hey, which chapters should I focus on? It's kind of the same way with podcasts. If somebody says, Brad, you really should check out the Tim Ferriss podcast. I'm like, okay, well, which episodes should I spend my time on? Exactly. So, yeah, because I don't want to waste my time. I like that strategy. I'm going to start using that, I think. Yeah. Do you have a best practice while you're reading? Do you take notes or use a highlighter? I do. So I I take all my notes in my phone because I always have my phone with me. That way I don't have to carry a a pad and paper. And then when I get done with the book, as I have time, I'll transcribe the notes from my phone into a Word document. So I like to do that because it lets me go back through the material and kind of uh, revisit it and let it sink in a little bit more. And then I have um, a better resource to turn to if I want to revisit it rather than just kind of scrolling through my phone. And then I've also used these notes that I've typed up to send to people when I recommend a book. I say, I like this book a lot. I think you'll like it. But if you don't have time to read it all, here are my notes on it, the, the things I think are important. Oh, well, then you're a good friend to recommend, recommend a book. I'm going to hit you up next time I'm looking for something to read. That's great. Be happy to. Yeah. Are you? Um, are there any books that you have read a second time in the past year? Yeah. Extreme Ownership is one that I've read, I think, three or four times. That's by Jocko Willink and Leif Babin, both sure. former Navy SEALs. Um, and that one is fantastic for a number of reasons. So it's a book on on leadership. And normally you think that at the lower levels in your career, like where I am and probably where many of the listeners might be, um, leadership doesn't apply to me, right? I don't have anybody under me, so why do I care about it? Well, this book kind of presents it in a different way. It, um, as the title says, encourages you to have extreme ownership over your life. And that means that you are responsible for everything. If something goes wrong, it's your fault without exception every time. Um, and he's, he's got some good chapters in here, um, like the one on leading up and down the chain of command. So as maybe the lowest person in the company, you have a responsibility to lead your boss and, and not in the traditional sense, but what that means is you have to provide your boss with, uh, the sufficient information for him to make timely decisions on your behalf. And if you are lacking something that you need, you need to communicate that effectively to your boss because if you're struggling to solve a problem and you haven't reached out um, to your manager and and made that known to him and uh, sufficiently articulated why you're struggling, then you don't have any excuse when you fail to complete the task. Uh, That's one of the big takeaways I had from that book being relatively early in my career. And there are some other really great chapters as well. Uh, but it's it's worth visiting, certainly. Man, you're giving me all kinds of notes. That's great. So leading up and down the chain of command is your favorite chapter in that book. So I will start with that and then probably revert to chapter one after I have read the chapter that you recommended. <laughs> with that, is that possible to read extreme ownership that way and get, get a lot of benefit from it? Yeah, definitely. The cool thing about this book is every chapter is a different 
uh, leadership principle, I guess. So they start the chapter with a story from the battlefield because these guys were really, they were in it in Iraq. Um, so they, they illustrate their principle with a story from the battlefield and then they describe the principle and then they illustrate the principle with a situation from a company because they're leadership consultants now. So it presents the material to you in three different ways and one chapter doesn't really build on, on the next. So yeah, it can be read uh, basically any way you want it to. So because I recommended that chapter to you, I have two other ones here that I think are really good. Chapter Great. seven is called Pri Prioritize and Execute. Mm -hmm. And that's about focusing on one thing at a time, because if you're trying to accomplish three things, you're probably going to screw them all up, right? So you determine the task that is um, highest priority, and then you execute on that, and then you move to the next one. And I, I implement that at work, um, in the gym, everywhere really and it's served me really well and then also chapter one is extreme extreme ownership title of the book so that that one's really important that's great I've, I've written that down to prioritize and execute but going back to the the first chapter you mentioned leading up and down the chain of command i talk about this too about the ability to manage your boss is so important and i feel like it's incumbent on you to make your boss feel comfortable enough to give you honest feedback. You know, our culture is so feelings focused that they're, they're not likely to, to be honest with you for fear of hurting your feelings. So it's up to you being open-minded and having the intellectual humility to figure out a way to induce them to give you honest feedback because that is going to be so crucial to your development because your boss is more familiar with your career and the potential trajectory of it than anyone. So that I feel like is number one in terms of how he can help you progress in your career, he or she. Exactly. I totally agree on that. And anytime I seek feedback in a face-to-face -face manner, um, or even if I'm not seeking feedback and I just get a compliment from my boss, I'll say, thank you very much, but what am I doing wrong? What have I screwed up recently? Where could I improve? Because while compliments are nice and they make you feel good, mm -hmm. it's really not doing anything for you, right? You can't, you can't build on a compliment and, and improve something. So I, I'm looking for my weaknesses all the time and what I'm screwing up because uh, there's certainly plenty of things that I'm screwing up and I can do better. I love that. Yeah, there's an old... Um proverb and i'm gonna i'm gonna paraphrase because i don't remember it exactly but it says that it's something like pity the guy who prefers the compliment that might deceive him to the criticism that might do him good and that's exactly what you're talking about so man that is that is such good stuff and then with regard to prioritize and execute i, I love that too because People are so dis distracted nowadays that they tend to think that they can multitask, but it's been proven time and time again that you will be more, effect more effective if you make a task your highest priority and then move on to the next one. Absolutely. Um, one of the things that I'm really impressed with, I, I saw you posted on Twitter a picture of your bookshelf, and it, it is it is really impressive. So what is your, do you have a personal finance book since we talked about uh, investing? Uh, thank you, first of all. Uh, my 
my bookshelf is the my favorite part of my apartment and it's it's ever growing um yeah i, I do have a, a favorite personal finance book the millionaire next door um i think i've heard you talk about this one before yep. but it was really eye-opening for me because it presents the qualities of america's millionaires so it, it's a it's a study and some of the big qualities are things that you you wouldn't normally think of. Like most of these people live in houses that are valued at about $300,000. Um, two thirds of them are self-employed. And what's really striking about that fact is that self-employed people only make up about 20% of the U.S. population, but they make up about 66% of America's millionaires. So correlation and causation are not, not the same thing, obviously, but that's... Uh, that's something you really can't ignore. Um, they live below their means, obviously. They invest 15 to 20% a year. They spend heavily on education for their children and their grandchildren because they know the importance of education, but they don't always spend heavily on most other things. They don't drive the newest cars. Um, they don't wear the most expensive clothes. And one of the things that really stood out to me from the book was they talk about the average value of the most expensive suit America's millionaires have ever have ever purchased. And I don't remember what the exact number was, but I remember that it was lower than the number a lot of my coworkers told me that they've spent on their suits. And <laughs> these guys are at the same level as me, so they're certainly not millionaires. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a great book. I love that one too. The Millionaire Next Door by Thomas Stanley. Um, he actually died in a car accident tragically a few years ago, but he also wrote The Millionaire Mindset, and that would be sort of the sequel, I guess. Or it's, it's an extension of The Millionaire Next Door, and both are excellent. But yeah, I love The Millionaire Next Door. He compares what he calls the under-accumulator of wealth. He uses the acronym UAW versus what he calls a prodigious accumulator of wealth, which is a PAW. <laughs> and um, he basically describes how wealth is what you don't see. It's the cars not purchased. It's the expensive watches not bought because those people have traded those things to have assets that they have purchased and money in the bank that produce income. So they want assets that put money into their pocket. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that book. I'm, I'm a big fan too, and I highly recommend it to people. I had a friend that texted me recently and said, um, why did you not recommend this book to me earlier? <laughs> so it's been around a while. I read it probably 15 years ago, and I think it was written in the mid-90s, um, but it is excellent. I have links on menoverseas.com to purchase the book um, I'm not trying to promote my own stuff, but I, I ask that people use the book, uh, use the links to buy the books because I take the time to put the links on the blog and then my buddies will message me and they're like, hey, I bought this book. And I'm like, oh, cool. Did you use the, the links on the website? And they're like, no. And I'm like, oh, dude, come on. <laughs> I'm spending all this time. Yeah, really. Uh, um, so that's, go ahead. So I, I read an article the other day. Uh, it's obviously not a personal finance book, but I think it's one of the best articles I've ever read on finance. It's called The Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel. Yep. And I think that's that's valuable for everyone to check out. It's a long read, but it, it talks about how people make decisions and how they think about spending and investing. And it, it's it's a it's a very valuable piece. Yes, I read everything that Morgan Housel writes. He wrote one that he published yesterday called Death. I think it's called Death and Taxes and Other Things or something like that. But uh, it's excellent. Everything that he writes, his, his writing is so crisp and clear. 
and it's something to aspire to for young writers like you and me. Actually, I think he's younger than me. He's older than you. Um, but yeah, he's so good. Do you have a, um, a favorite podcaster? I do. And this is a boring answer, but I have to go with Tim Ferriss because he's just, he's so good. He's the master of conversation. He's a master interviewer. And I can listen to his podcasts that are two and three hours long and, and be on the edge of my seat the whole time. So I was scrolling back through my podcast library the other day and when i was going through his show mm -hmm. i kept encountering episodes that i've listened to two and three and four times and that's just not the case with any other podcaster that i go through so that's that's why i have to say tim ferris do you have any favorite episodes of his off the top of your head really too many to count but I, i've got three in front of me here that i would recommend um the first is you know, I don't have the episode number, but it's with Stanley McChrystal and Chris Fussell. Mm -hmm. And Stan McChrystal was a, a four-star general, and Chris Fussell was, I, I believe he was a Navy SEAL, and he was Stan McChrystal's aide-de-camp. Um, it's really, it's about leadership. And uh, there were some really good takeaways from this podcast, one of which was he tells a story about an exercise that he put his his troops through. It was just a training exercise. But basically, their their mission was to extract hostages. And in the midst of the mission, McChrystal sends in like 100 reinforcements for the enemy. So his guys start taking casualties, and they're now faced with the dilemma, do we extract our men or do we continue with the mission and get the hostages. Now, this is a really hard decision for these guys to make because the Ranger Creed says, you know, you never leave a man behind. But on the other hand, we have this mission we have to execute. So he explains that the reason that he put them in this situation is that we have black and white rules, but many of the situations we encounter in life cannot be answered with a black and white answer. So we have to take our black and white rules and apply the shades of gray to those rules and be able to think critically in tough situations and interpret the circumstances and decide what we're going to do. And um, inaction is extremely dangerous. So you need to be able to make a decision. And I, I think this applies obviously more than to the military. I, I've seen this happen. Uh, a number of times. And I think it's a very important lesson and something that you should practice if you can. Yep. I love that. Tim Ferriss is very popular. He, he was once deemed the Oprah of the internet. And I listened to his podcasts too, in terms of, yeah, I, mean, I could listen to them over and over. And if I had to recommend a few for pure entertainment value, the one with Jamie Foxx is excellent. I think he did two with Jamie Foxx. Um, so I always recommend that one if you're just looking to relax and listen to something fun. Um, in terms of investing, the episode that I would recommend is number 338. It was Howard Marks, How to Invest with Clear Thinking. That was excellent. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm also a big fan of Tim Ferriss. I'll have to check out that one on Howard Marks. I don't think I've listened to that one. Yeah, it's really good. Uh, there's so many of his that I liked. Um, if I just thought for a minute, I could I could come up with a whole bunch more yeah, Sebastian Younger, that one was fantastic. Yeah, his he, first one with Jocko Willink was great. There are just so many good ones. Yeah, Sebastian Younger wrote a book. Is it called Tribe? Yes. It, yeah, yeah, he's a yeah, he's a really excellent interview. He talks a lot about his book. That's cool. So, is there an, a podcast episode that you go you go back to, like you would a good book? 
Yeah, all of those three I, I've re-listened yeah. to, and and Jocko Willink, I just re-listened to his the other day, and I've probably listened to it about ten times. I just he's just a fantastic role model, and everything he says is is it's great. It improves yeah. your life. That's cool. You probably benefit from having an hour commute, huh? As opposed to living maybe ten, fifteen minutes from the office. Yeah, I think I do. As much as I dislike getting on the train every day, it is nice to have some time to yourself to read or listen to podcasts. Yeah. What are you what have you most learned living in New York City that you would not have gotten otherwise? I think probably the ability to be open minded. Mm. And you know, we talked about intellectual humility before, and I'm certainly have a long way to go on this, but just the exposure to different cultures has really allowed me to understand that hey people live differently and, and that's okay and it's very important to respect that right and that's probably a perspective that you get from traveling as well but uh, just being able to work with people who come from different countries and you know have different customs and celebrate different holidays and eat different foods like so much of this stuff is so cool and I would have never known about any of it without living here or doing extensive traveling but living in new york is kind of like traveling all over the world every day yeah that's a good way to look at it i think that where i live houston is diverse in the same way on a, on a much smaller scale but you're right it so enriches your life to be exposed to different viewpoints and to immerse yourself in different cultures um, i really wish that more people would travel or even get a chance to live in New York City. A lot of people that I went to high school, not a lot, but a few people that I went to high school with, after they graduated from college, they moved to New York City just to get the experience. And then after they got the experience, maybe lived there five or 10 years, they moved back to a place like Houston to start a family, uh, probably because, well, they wanted to be closer to their family to begin with, but the cost of living in Houston is so much lower than New York City. Yeah, so I that, think that's, that's a great approach and that's exactly what I'm gonna do. I, I won't be here forever certainly but i'm glad i've spent some time here that's cool man well let's wrap on that it's, we've coming up right at about an hour um joe i really appreciate you doing this man this was this is a great chat it's packed with good information and and actionable advice how can people find out more about you so i'm on twitter at joseph c wells i'm on instagram at jc wells 12 and if you go to my website josephcwells.com there are links to all all my social media also, if you want to reach out via email, you can get me at wellsjosephc at gmail.com. And I'd be happy to talk to anybody about self-improvement or real estate or personal finance or anything you want to talk about. Fantastic. I don't read a lot of blogs, but josephcwells.com is, is just great writing. And I encourage everyone to check it out. And we'll wrap on that. Thank you guys for listening. Um, I know that you could be doing anything in the world, so you chose to spend your time with us, and I really appreciate it. If you're not already subscribed to the blog, please do so, manoverseas.com. These podcasts should be on iTunes and Spotify within probably the next couple of weeks. We're just waiting on a few approvals, so you'll be able to, you'll be able to tune in there. Also, you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My Instagram is at man underscore overseas. Thank you, folks.